Hunted by the Kraken, the sinister leader of the Rule Empire, Beverly Jordan must control her powers, known only as the Priori, to survive. Believing her powers fit only for destruction and ruin, Beverly and her brother Charlie set off on a journey to find the fabled haven of Kriana, an underwater world where one can learn to split the fabric of time and manipulate the lines of power, where winged aliquines soar through the air and the shadows lurk in waiting for someone to release them. Will Beverly escape the grasping clutches of the Kraken? Or is she destined to become his weapon? Chapter 22 Hope in Hopelessness It was reflected in Cypress's eyes, a bright beam of white light, with me suspended in the center of its deceptively gentle embrace. I couldn't see the light, but I could feel icy lines wrapped tight around me, restricting all movement, allowing only shallow breaths. Bound so hard, I was unable even to shiver. These bonds covered my entire body except my head, which was already throbbing. Sharp bolts of lightning flashed across my eyes. The cocoon of lines trapped my magic inside me, unable to break the shackles. I couldn't use the priori even if I wanted to. My brain was too raw and burnt. Through slitted eyes I watched Cyprus, his jaw clenched, his eyes darting, hands secured behind his back. Lying down, he wrenched them under his legs until they were in front of him. The hissing of the sand beneath his wiggling back was too loud in the muted chamber. He peered about, searching the dark. The only people were Satine and Syra, limp on the floor with their hands roped behind their backs. Cautiously, Cypress rose to his feet and briefly checked the others, listening to their chests. Satisfied, he walked towards my prison of light and lines, his head turning to and fro, eyes peering into the darkness. The column of light holding me, illuminated black pillars on either side, hewn from rough rock. They stood in parallel rows, which melted into the shadows, as did all other details beyond. As Cypress approached me, I spoke. I can see it in your eyes, but I can only feel the lines. He jumped. And I can only see the light, not the lines. My medallion is gone. Satinay and Syra don't have theirs either. Where are the lines? He moved closer, standing just outside the circle of white sand. I couldn't follow his movement, unable to shift my head for fear of excruciating pain. Even the glow of the lines were too bright. You have to touch them, I whispered, barely able to make a sound, my throat raw from screaming. I shied from the memory of my mind engulfed in invisible flames. All right? He hesitated, then reached to touch the light which held me captive. In his eyes, I could see the dull lines appearing around my body. God, how can you breathe? With great <clears throat> difficulty. 
You have to get yourself and the others out of here. Get help. The Kraken could return it at any minute. We can't leave without you. We won't leave without you. Look, Bev, I need you to wiggle. Cypress urged, as he tried to pluck at the massive lines imprisoning me. Cypress, I... God! I gasped as the lines constricted. A heightened sense of danger swept through me. Cypress's head snapped around, but before he could remove his hands from the lines, he was launched high into the air and thrown against a pillar. He slid down to the ground and landed with a sickening thud, unconscious. I gasped shallow gulps of air as the lines loosened enough to allow me to breathe. Tears ran down my face as I tried to call out Cypress's name. Stupid boy, came a cold male voice. Stupid, stupid boy. A hooded figure walked out of the darkness. With a careless flick of his hand, the kraken started to slam Cypress in a staccato rhythm against the column. Stop it! cried Satinay in anguish, having finally regained consciousness. With a final thud, Cypress sprawled immobile on the floor. The kraken turned his eyes to Satinay, and she gave one long scream before he turned his back on her. I knew she felt the flames scorching her mind as I had. She lay on the ground panting, her eyes closed tight. My own eyes shied away from the darkness of his hood. I was in no hurry to feel the flames again. I focused instead on his bare feet, which were angular and white. Finally, I meet the elusive enchanter mage, the annoying bug beneath my shoe. The one who continued to slip through my fingers. He hissed. He moved to stand in front of me. How is it that you continued to evade me? How? At every turn down every road, how is it that you thwarted me every time? How? He shouted, spittle hitting me in the face. Too afraid to shift my gaze, I continued to stare at the floor. You will answer me when I ask you a question he said, his voice chilling the air. Lines wrenched my head up until I looked directly into his eyes, black and flickering, engulfing my mind in flame. It seemed endless, the pain clawing up and down my body, unable to look away. Finally, I was released. My head hung low, and I shut my eyes tight. The room echoed. My scream mingled with the Kraken's malevolent laughter. Don't you see? He said, triumphant. There's no way out this time. No one to help you. His sickly sweet breath fanned my hair as he whispered in my ear. No escape. Why is it the Priori would come to you? When there were more intelligent beings, more deserving beings, in which he could reside. I tried to shut out his voice there was no ignoring that tone. Becoming more insane as his goal, his final triumph was within his grasp. Patterns darted across my eyelids, making me nauseous. With effort, I opened them, to find the Kraken had turned his back. But then, that has always been the mystery, hasn't it? He continued, shaking a finger. Why? Why? 
Why would it come to you? Why wouldn't it come to me? He shouted the last sentence and spun around, the hooded cloak falling from his shoulders. Before me stood a pale man with the most stunning features I had ever seen. The cruel yet elfin nobility of his face, his delicate jaw, knife-blade nose, full mouth and white blonde hair shone with an inner radiance. The beauty was not one you would see on a fair maiden, but a dangerous beauty, a lethal beauty, one which centred on his perilous, flickering black eyes. It took a long time to figure it out. It seemed too simple. Surely magic is more complex than that. But then I saw in a moment of clarity, such a large mass of magic had to find a host with enough empty space in his or her mind, one that could contain this enormous amount. The kraken reached out and stroked my cheek with a frigid finger, causing my body to break out in goosebumps. You, my dear, had enough empty space in your head. Not intelligence, talent, or even will. Just a gap that would never have been filled if magic had not intervened. How dare he? I strained for the priori, but it remained immovable. My jaw clenched, and I retaliated in the only way I could and spat as hard as possible in his direction. He chuckled the sound malicious and belittling, and wiped a small dot of saliva from his cheek. Dear me, someone must teach you some manners. His voice was menacingly low. He twisted his head to the left and right, neck cracking. With each word, the lines contracted. Don't you agree? Bones creaked, and I felt something in my hand give way with a snap. A pounding filled my head, and my lungs shrieked for more air. Rage fled, and all I could think about was gaining just one more breath. Gasping, I nodded as best I could. The kraken tightened the lines once more, then released me to a point where I could just breathe. I rasped, Yes! for good measure. My body was one fierce ache the blood in my veins pounding against the pressure of the lines. My brain was on fire, and my magic was locked away where I could not seem to reach it. Of course, as it was not based on intelligence and will, my mind was too full for the priori to enter me. So simple. Can I think why it kept me up so many sleepless nights? The Kraken began to recount how he'd planned my capture. For the past two decades, I had filled his every waking moment. It was alarming to know the lengths he went to, the people he killed, to get to the Priori, so he could rule. As he spoke, a flash of movement beyond a pillar caught my eye. I tilted my head in its direction, knowing it could not be Syra or the twins, as they were all underneath the Kraken's watchful eye. I scanned the shadows for the source, hoping against hope that it was friend rather than foe. I saw something again, farther along, but I could not pick out a distinct outline or shape. My brain was fuzzy and lacked oxygen. 
to clear my mind, I closed and opened my eyes. Rather than focus on a particular spot, I focused on the general area, not looking at one space but all spaces, as I did when I was searching for dragonets. To the left, something moved, and my eyes snapped to it, following its path through the darkness. When I realized what it was, I nearly lost it in the darkness. A shadow, attached to nothing and moving of its own free will. The brethren. I almost moaned out loud. There was nothing the brethren could do to help. But what concerned me most was that the shadows and my friends had relinquished their chance to escape on the slight hope they could save me. There was nothing I could do. Hanging immobile in this eerie light, with the lines of power squeezing the life out of me. Eyes squinted to see the shadows better. I attempted to convey my message to leave. I had no doubt the Kraken could hurt them just as easily in shadow form. Go away! I prayed. Flapping their hands, they tried to send an urgent message of their own. Keeping my face neutral, I tried to focus on their signals. They repeated the same message over and over. One shadow was pointing frantically to the Kraken. The next held up its hand with splayed fingers, and to the right, several shadows formed a symbol of three interlocking rings. As quickly as they had begun, the three rings collapsed into one indistinct shadow. The first two brethren had their hands down by their sides in the blink of an eye. Breath tickled my ear and the Kraken asked in an intimate whisper, What could be so interesting that you would forget your manners and cease to pay attention? Hmm? Let us see, shall we? No! I croaked, as with a violent crack the Kraken threw out his hand towards the darkness of the pillars. A stream of fire blazed through the air, scattering the shadows in all directions. It was then I saw the ring on his middle finger, an ancient ring made from bronze with three interlocking bosses. The Trinity of Brethren. The ancient ring of temporary immortality. That was the message the shadows were trying to convey. I should have known. Knowledge of the ring would fill the Brethren's every moment. It was written in their chronicles. Kraken had found it after his exile from the Protectors. He had wooed them all with the ring and killed them while they wore it. He created a community of shadows who could only watch in despair, repelled by the object, unable to seek revenge. He transformed any who stood against him in his quest to rule the Empire. The thought of an immortal kraken made me quake. An idea flitted across my mind, just out of reach but was lost instantly at the sound of the Kraken's voice. Ah, yes. The shadows. Cannot come anywhere near me, but still try to save the day. How noble. Again, he cracked his neck with an unnatural twist. Or maybe. You've come to watch me discipline the girl for letting her attention wander. The lines compressed, and a strangled cry escaped my throat. Darkness crept into the corner of my vision. The Kraken took his time in gathering a handful of black sand. 
and let it slip slowly through his fingers. Your time is up, girl, he said, his voice sounding distant. Time is slipping through your fingers. He gave an ironic smile. Like sand. As quickly as they bound me, the lines were released. I sagged in my bonds, thankful that I was still alive. A girl who thought she could save the world. Ha! Never in my wildest dreams did I believe that you would not only deliver the Priori, but what was left of the magic community. You, Beverly Jordan, Enchanter Mage, made it all possible. Power and revenge. Now you will betray them by handing me your magic. Again, I tried to reach for the Priori, but it danced just out of reach. I spat at him with venom, my feeling of impotence overwhelming me. I won't be your weapon. I won't betray my people. The Priori will stay with me to the end. But you will betray your people. You see this ingenious contraption that holds you? puts the Sholak to shame. Not only does it serve as an effective torture device, it can also suck the magic right out of you. Once it is triggered, it will channel the Priori straight into me. What do you mean, triggered? I asked, unable to keep the tremor from my voice. Oh, you needn't worry about that. All you need to worry about is how you are going to survive this. His eyes lit up, insanity raging, and on his command, the lines constricted as though a giant fist was crushing me. As the fist squeezed harder, I jerked my head to open my windpipe. Instead, my eyes met his with their crackling flames. Unable to escape the flames or lines, my body jolted and struggled. The torment was all-consuming. I couldn't think beyond wanting the torture to stop. It seemed an eternity before I was released, needles stabbing my skin as blood flowed back into limbs. Not even trying to steel myself for the next round, I stared mindlessly at my friends. All three of them huddled against the black pillar. Pain shot through me again. They cried out to me. I saw their mouths move, but could not hear them. I wanted to tell them that I would not betray them, that I would endure anything for them, but I couldn't speak. The Kraken's response to their cries reverberated in my ears. She will give it up, if not to save herself, then to save her friends. Lines of power blazed to life and sprang forward, catching the three unawares. The lines snaked around their torsos, arms, legs, and necks, Watching me, his face blank, the Kraken opened his hand wide and then slowly curled it as though he was grasping the three and crumpling them in his palm. As he watched me, I watched them, my only friends, the closest thing I now had to a family, all of them turning shades of ruddy purple as the lines crushed them. Their strangled gasps were desperate but their eyes remained defiant. Something stirred inside me, gathering momentum. Anger. All-consuming, passionate anger, filling me up, smothering everything. 
with a roar like a charging beast, I called forth the Omega spell, using my rage to rip the Priori from the bindings inside me. They would not die for me. It was my life for theirs. Releasing the Priori in a blast of thunder, I screamed and doubled over. The lines around me loosened. Choking, I felt the Priori being ripped from me. Every cell felt like it was being dissolved in acid and swept away. My vision cleared, and I saw the room sparkle with magic in a multitude of colors. I could see the Priori's shimmering form streaming out of my body and being absorbed by the shining light. I shrieked my throat roar, singed by the tide of power. No! What's going on? Why didn't the Priori destroy the prison? The stream of magic arched high, then poured down into the kraken. The Priori spilled into his body, running down the length of him like a waterfall and filling him from the feet up. His deranged laughter filled the air, making it crackle with electricity. My mind railed against the rainbow of spells that formed my prison. This can't happen! I'm his keeper, I can't... It just can't be taken away like this and given to him! The brethren, grim, floated on the other side, red bodies of glowing light in my magic-filled vision. The twins and Syra lay forgotten, panting, to one side. Cypress strained up, turning his anguished eyes on me. The full realization of my betrayal hit me, like a slap across the face. The lines had not been preventing me from using my magic. The Priori had been protecting itself. The binding was there to protect, not imprison. I was its keeper. I was supposed to have a quality that the Kraken didn't. How is it possible that this quality didn't seem to matter anymore? Why didn't it stop this violation of my magic? Not intelligence, talent, or even will. The Kraken's voice rang through my denial. Just an empty gap. My mind was too full for the Priori to enter me. So simple. Just so simple. The concept tripped my galloping thoughts. The solution had been right in front of me. So simple. I groaned as the feeling of dissolving from the inside out increased. The steady stream of the Priori had reached the Kraken's ribcage. The sand was slipping through my fingers. Clearing my mind, as I had done each time the Sholak's pain coursed through my body, I felt the magic around me with my senses, searching for my salvation, beating back on consciousness with all I had. I found it in one of the many spells confining me. The spell that controlled the flow of the Priori into the Kraken. The purplish enchantment was rigged to stop the flow after a certain amount of magic had been channeled. An idea took shape. Though the line spells imprisoning me could not be broken at once, it might be possible to rupture just one, the one which channeled the flow of magic. If I could do that, 
Kraken would be flooded with excess power that his body couldn't handle. It was the only option. If the Kraken wanted the Priori, he was going to get it all. I wrestled some of the Priori from the torrent into a ball the size of my two fists and added the majority of my life force. Pulling it, like a slingshot against the dragging force of the funneling spell, I let go. The blue ball of light shot forward and shattered the spell. Like an arrow, the Priori swooped down upon the Kraken with no enchantment to temper its speed or stop an overdose of power. Striking him full force, his laugh turned to a cry, then screams of agony as the unexpected burst of magic filled him to critical capacity and passed the amount his body could handle. <laughs> the lines imprisoning me unraveled and dropped me to the ground. My weakness was overwhelming. All my life energy and power flung into breaking the spell. I could already feel the Kraken rally against the burden, turning back a drop of power, then a trickle. With barely the strength to lift myself, how was I to battle the Kraken now? I trampled the thought. The final step had to be made, even if it cost me the final minutes of life energy I possessed. I gathered myself for the final moment, the dregs of my power fluttering in my chest. Was it enough? Was any of this enough? A burst of vigor sparked up my leg, banishing the weariness in my head and fanning my power into flame. I looked back and saw Cypress's pale finger resting against my ankle. He and the others stretched out in a chain, lying hand to ankle, crawling just far enough to reach me. Do it, mouthed Cypress dark bruises like livid slashes around his throat. Drawing our four magics together, I pushed. The Kraken fell to his knees. His enchantment pressed back, was losing ground with every shove. I rasped. You were right. Empty space is needed to hold the Priori, but so is strength and hope. Fortunately for you, an overload means death. Now it's your turn to become a shadow. I slammed the Priori down, the mounting pressure of the excess magic near explosion. The Kraken clawed at his chest, as though he could rip out the blinding power that consumed him. Pain and disbelief distorted his beautiful features. Looking him straight in the eye, I called my magic. In a surge of silent thunder, the magic exploded outwards. The Kraken's body and his elfin face disintegrated in a flash of light. The Priori surged towards me. Launched into the shadows, I was thrust against a pillar as it re-entered my body. Helpless, unable to move, I stared at the bright circle of light surrounding the lone shadow. All that remained of the Kraken. The Brethren now a bright red, malevolent mass swooped upon him. A wave of malice from the lone shadow overwhelmed me 
as it turned and retreated at inhuman speed. The brethren tried to pursue, but seemed to be unable to hold their shape, collapsing and twisting in on themselves. The room began to waver and lose substance. Darkness retreated and objects became indistinct. The brethren morphed before my eyes, changing from the dark of a shadow to a pure blinding light. Their bodies were formed to sprout delicate wings and small curved beaks until hundreds of white flutterbees clustered before me. The dark hall around us dissolved to be replaced by a different scene. We were at the entrance of a cave, halfway up a sharp cliff face, with uneven stone pillars supporting the entrance on both sides, and a balcony rail carved unbroken from the solid rock, which enclosed the jutting platform of stone. Midnight blue mountains spread out before us, lit by a crescent moon. A river glistened between the trees of a dark forest, winding its way into the distance between the mountains. In a flurry of wings, the brethren took to the sky. They glowed in the moonlight as they rose to freedom. I followed their flight until they rested in the night sky, their brilliant gleam forming new stars. Perhaps as an afterthought of the unfortunate Tor, who had gotten the ring's gifts so wrong. I let my head slump back against the stone. A small smile played against my lips. They had been right, the brethren. I did free them from their shackles. But the twins and Syrah were wrong. I did betray them at the worst possible time. And look what had happened. I placed a hand in front of my mouth as I coughed. When I pulled it away, I could make out flecks of blood. At least, I did something right. My friends were alive, the Kraken was dead, and the brethren were free. Charlie's handsome face sprang into my mind. Tears trickled down my cheeks. I messed up. The Priori shouldn't have chosen me. Charlie. I got Charlie killed. An object lying in the middle of a white patch of sand, sparkled in the moonlight. Unsure what it was, but sensing it was important, I crawled over with painful effort. Brushing away the sand, I held the object up to the faint light. Encased in a prism of glass was the trinity of brethren. A magical aura surrounded the glass. My aura. I smiled grimly. The Priori, when reducing the Kraken to a shadow, must have heated the ring. When it fell to the ground, the heat melted the sand to form glass. I had a feeling the glass would be impenetrable, and the Trinity of Brethren would remain safe within it. Perhaps something else I could balance against my mistakes. Cyprus, Satine, and Syra leant against a pillar on the other side of the entrance. Cyprus with his eyes closed, his breathing shallow. Cyrus sat a few feet away from him with his knees drawn up and his forehead resting against them. Satine lay sprawled on the ground at their feet, gazing out at the view. Using my last reserves, 
I crawled over to them and squeezed clumsily between the two boys. Their skin was purpling with bruises in long inflamed lines. But before I could speak, before I could even begin to beg their forgiveness, all three turned towards me. Both of the twins gripped a hand, and Syra laid his on my shoulder. Still with us? Cypress searched my eyes. We thought we lost you, came Satinay's trembling voice. As though she couldn't bear the thought, she turned once again to study the view. You saved my neck, whispered Syra. I could have died, but you saved me. After all I'd done to you, you still saved me. I owe you everything. Please don't, I croaked. Could have turned out differently. I almost got us killed and lost the priori. And then there's Charlie. I just don't. Cyrus shook his head, smiling. That's why the priori chose you. Empty space isn't the only factor. The host of the priori needs to be able to change a dark fate to the seemingly in- impossible path. The better and brighter path. I see that now. Syra paused. I am so sorry for everything I've done. My, my grandmother was a victim of the Kraken. Somewhere within you is her magic. I despised you for it. You were a part of stealing her away. But what hurt me more was that you had a part of her when I didn't. He looked at his knees, biting his lip. But I was wrong. She chose you. They all chose you so that you in turn could save me, save my family, save us all. I'm so sorry. Was all I could manage. I squeezed his hand and received a weak smile in return. Cypress said softly, Over and over you have shown your ability to defy the odds. If that isn't the reason the Briori chose you, I don't know what is. Cypress leant back against the pillar. All was silent after that, as I mulled over their words. Look, said Satinay, and cocked her head. She pointed at a far-off grouping of purple rock spires. Aris. Movement, the flapping of aliquine wings, sped towards us from the rocky island. I could even pick out the tiniest glimmer of the lake surrounding it. Of course the sentries of Aris would notice the total transformation of half a mountainside. Exhausted, we watched the approaching aliquines, the silence broken only by our wheezing breaths. Cyrus' hands still gripped my shoulder. My hands still held the twins. Each of my companions fell asleep as we waited. However, the disconcerting feeling in the pit of my stomach forbade sleep. The kraken was still out there and not completely helpless in shadow form. I couldn't help thinking that he knew too much about what it was to be a shadow. That made him a dangerous threat. The kraken had always underestimated me, a mere girl. He thought hopelessness would break us. He didn't understand that where there was friendship, there was hope. There was even hope in hopelessness. 
Welcome, uh, everyone, to episode 27, chapter 22, our penultimate episode. It's very exciting. Uh, we have with us an array of wonderful people. We have Emily, which you just heard. We also have Lois. Hello. We have David. Hello. We have Kevin. Hello. Obviously, we have myself. I'm Sam. Hello. Hello. And unfortunately, despite all of our efforts to try and have the full compliment for our, our second last episode, we don't have a Colin Smith because unfortunately for us, he is fabulously talented and successful. <laughs> and actually, right now, I believe he's on stage as Malvolio in some fabulous yellow tights. Yes, it's very, it's very second. He is, you know, he's doing wonderful theatrical things that we're all um, wishing we could be watching at this very moment. It's 100% true. So we miss you, <laughs> Cole. Hmm. This is, this is basically the Cole episode, really. So. Yeah. yeah. One of the big reasons of trying to get him, have everyone here, well, like, partly because it, it was it was Colin that was having trouble, basically, because he was so busy um, with this show. But it's such a big Kraken episode that we're like, well, we kind of want Colin here to talk about it. So we do have a few interesting tidbits to hopefully try and make up for that lack that we will we'll get to presently. But right now, what do people think of the chapter? Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a pretty good uh yeah good summary. There were a couple of moments <laughs> when I was reading it the first time around. If you listen carefully, you can hear me tearing up. I cried multiple times in the car driving from uh where was I? Somewhere today, like they're doing an hour's drive and I teared up multiple times listening to this. I blame you people and your acting. <laughs> <laughs> The car. You, are, you are not allowed to die before you finish the narration. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's touching. But you can hear that emotion in your voice as you're reading it, Kevin. Oh, good. So I'm glad. I, it's just just Amazeballs narration in this to go with Amazeballs Kraken goodness. Oh, yeah. It was delicious, like, all round because... What was being asked of you guys in terms of acting is, I think, probably the hardest workout you guys would have gotten so far with the places you all had to go. Like, especially, like, there's a line that Satinay has, which she's watching, essentially, Cyprus being ping-ponged all around the place. Yeah. Like, the stakes don't get higher than that. <clears throat> Originally, when I um had this, I had written the original scene years and years and years ago, so Cyprus and Satinay and Syra didn't really have all of that much to do with the final ending, like how Beverly overcame the Kraken. And then as I went back to rewrite it a couple of years ago when I was doing my mentorship with Isabel Carmody, that was when we were like, no, they have to be a part of the ending. And I'm hoping that that turned out well. I'm hoping that it wasn't too little. You guys would know better <laughs> being separated from the, from the intensity of writing the narrative. I think it definitely does work. There is a lot about this chapter that is, uh, I think it, it skirts some cliches a little bit. And I feel like having that reminds you that this is its own unique story about, about these people and their bond together and stuff like that. I feel like it was a good choice having everyone there. Yeah. Mm. And God, guys, wasn't Cole 
awesome as the Kraken. Like we've had oh, little man. bits of Kraken and Kraken Goodreads every week, but this <laughs> yeah. was just like all of the Kraken goodness, and particularly with like Tom Hiddleston being in Brisbane this yeah, week yeah. filming Thor scene, <laughs> and every time I would see his smarmy face appear on the Facebook feeds because people were taking photographs of them like during filming and stuff, and it just just reminded me of the epic Kraken voice slash Hiddleston impression from Cole and uh mm-hmm. and we got a much more of the range of the Kraken I guess yes yeah because it always it had always been this very sort of very in control very dangerous sort of Kraken but now it was not only was it this in control dangerous character it was this sort of like celebratory Kraken and then it was the the sort of like the gloating Kraken and then it was this sort of now becoming more concerned and sort of like yeah. everything's slipping through my fingers and it's all going away Kraken right it's just like yeah. yeah. So, you know, the Kraken goes through all of these phases as well, but the Kraken is wholly sort of evil in this section. But I sort of, I tried to make it throughout the story that, you know, you, you kind of knew where his evil came from type thing. And and I, I've, I've hoped that during the story that as you have gone through it, you've seen that I've tried to make it that everything has like a good and a bad side. And so in this one, for example, like the lines of power are being used to basically strangle Beverly into, you know, giving up her control. Uh, whereas, you know, the lines of power previously have been used to, you know, help her be invisible and all of these yeah, other, yeah. you know, really cool stuff. So I, I kind of wanted to show the fact that, you know, it's that kind of adage of nothing's inherently good or evil. It's how you use it. Yeah. Yeah. Which has been set mm. up really nicely by the fact that she thinks that her enchantery kind of stuff is inherently evil. And then she finds out that it's actually has a, a positive use. It's not just for destruction, it's also for protection and stuff like that. And then you find out that the, using the lines isn't just utilitarian, it's also able to be uh, used as a weapon. I think that's kind of neat. I was just going to say, going back briefly to the Kraken, there's something that Chuck Wendig says that I try very hard to keep in my head when I'm writing stuff, which is, it should be clear to you on some level as a reader, and especially as a writer, that the bad guy is genuinely the hero in his own story. Mm. Yeah, yeah. From his own take. And even though the Kraken seems really over the top and really sort of villainous once Mm -hmm. we hit, you know, once we hit these these final chapters, you can still see that he's not just villainous for the sake of being villainous. He's unhinged, but he Mm -hmm. genuinely believes that something wrong has happened and he needs to fix it. He's the only one who can fix it. And instead of just being, instead of being that heroic, I'm the one who can fix it, he's like... <sighs> nothing ever goes right. I'm the only one who can fix this. Hmm. But he's still the good guy in his own story. He's got a scientific kind of approach to to what he's doing that blinds him to the sort of cost that this is all having. Hmm. When, when you talk about that, David, um, it puts me in mind of Fringe and in the TV series Fringe, how the kind of crazy professor guy who is played by, is it John Noble? who's an Australian actor, he and his partner are doing these experiments on children back in the day and and in this day and age he's, you know, kind of similar sort of thing. He's unhinged, but that sort of thing of, you know, you don't think about the morality of it or you're thinking about the morality in your own way. And so, so I mean, like the Kraken, as he, he was rising through the ranks and, you know, giving people that ring of immortality, you know, <coughs> when you're in a military dictatorship, you know, you can see how it would be working in his mind. He's like, yep, I'm killing off all of these horrible people who are in charge yeah. of the thing. And then now I am leader. Okay, well, let's sort shit out. 
you know, so, so you can kind of that, you know, where you think that you're doing things for the greater good, but you don't think of the individual rights. Yeah. You're yeah. Violating to do that. Yeah. There's a really interesting progression there too, where you might start out actually with correct intentions, but that pragmatism leads you to just gradually tip and tip the scales further and further in a particular direction. And by the time basically that the scales are unbalanced and you're just doing things that everyone else finds repugnant, you're, you're way off the map and you don't realize. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like, how would you feel being told that you were empty enough to hold a power. <laughs> yeah. Being told you're essentially an airhead. That, that you are essentially just full of nothing. And mm -hmm. so you got filled up with power and now he's going to, you know, he was clearly full of grand things. And so he could only take a small amount of the power. Like, how would you have felt if that was you? As a reader, or I guess, you know, a listener, it is sort of like this guy's clearly gone off the deep end, like, mm -hmm. and he is rationalizing and all, all the rest of it. Though I do feel that in Beverly's position, it's sort of like, well, Beverly's position is, you know, slowly being squeezed by magic that used to help her. And so yeah. it's like, you know, at that point, I'm probably not thinking amazingly straight. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's probably like an edge of panic. But that's the sort of moment where you're like, yeah, this guy is kind of just grasping. But you need a self-awareness and a self-confidence to be able to make that assessment, though. I'm not so sure because we're talking about if somebody comes to you and you have some faith in uh, their authority, their intelligence, their capability, and they tell you these things, yeah, it's going to be meaningful. Yeah. Even though you're in a deeply emotional state because some really horrific stuff is in the middle of happening and has been happening for a reasonable amount of time now. This is the man who has tried to murder everyone in your life, yeah. putting you down. It's like, why am I giving you any, you're like, yeah. your opinion means nothing to me. Go away. <laughs> so if it had been Elytri saying the same bit, yes. she would have been like, yes. oh, God, you're right. Whoa, like, what? Yeah. 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 The thing that I, I think really works really well with that timing, too, is it kind of shows a little bit of it shows a little bit of some of the traits you guys were talking about earlier, the insecurity and not quite paranoia, but, you know, it's not a very, it's not a very together thing because he's basically standing there going, I will crush you with magic and I will call you a poo head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's kind of grinding the boot in or whatever at this. Yeah. 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 Or, or even gilding Lily at that point, you're like, I, yeah, I think yeah. you got it on the first one. The second one's not so yeah. effective. <laughs> you know, look, I am going to admit that I, I went hardcore with the, cliche of i'm gonna gloat and tell you some of my plans yeah yeah <laughs> just because i like i know it's a cliche but i really love reading it at the end of like you get to the climax of your books and you're like yes i want to know your grand plan please tell me i would like to know your grand plan please gloat at me please i want to know yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, you get to know all of the things emily do you think that if you were a villain you would do that as well like <laughs> if you've been clever you kind of want people to know you've been clever. Like, yeah. you know, I will admit to that flaw in my personality. I will I think go out vulnerable. of my way to ex yeah. <laughs> explain to people how much thought I put into this thing that I did. <laughs> so I imagine I would be one of those horrible villains who's like, and this is where I really screwed you over. <laughs> and then, you know. But it's also, it's not even just oh. like, it's not even like boasting about like how clever you are. It's also sort of like, you kind of just want to talk about it. 
because yeah. it's like he's at the very top. He doesn't really have someone he go he can like call up and be like, "Hey, I've had this really cool idea. I just want to like just spitball it with you." <laughs> he's just been sitting on this for yeah. how it for years for like you know, and it's finally got to the end, and, he, and he's just like, "I need to tell someone." Because for him, it's all it's very clever, but it's just sort of like. Here is a cool thing that I want to talk to people about, and I haven't been able to, and now I get to, and you're just going to sit there and listen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, think, I think that that does stem from a very personal kind of grudge, because yeah. it's a different kind of, I want you to sit there and listen if it's a more societal kind of grudge. It's less, I will tell you my plans. No, it's this horrible reveal after horrible reveal of just how clever I am, and yeah. look at me shut down the traffic in Times Square or whatever. Yeah. And, so and I, I think he also it, uses it calculatingly as well because even though he's having this big gloat and it's probably making him feel great, he's doing it to goad her into losing control. Yeah. Like he's yeah. doing it on he's doing it on purpose. He knows that whatever is holding her power in is actually something that self is is like a self mechanism for her. It's holding yeah. it in. And so he's trying to break that so that she will trigger the release of the priori and so that he can get to it. So it, it's not only a I am gonna tell you all my plans, but I'm gonna make you so angry that you will Yeah. yeah. I'm gonna trigger my trap. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna push all your buttons. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Explaining the plan is part of the plan. And how, yeah, and how satisfactory does it feel that you are gloating about this plan that you've made and then that triggers the very thing that they don't want? Yeah. You know? If it was a hero rather than an anti-hero doing that, we would be like, yes, go for it. <laughs> yeah, well, there's kind of a shade of that in what happens there because it's by Beverly being able to spot that last purple enchantment that she then turns his victory on him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I did want to ask you guys how you felt about the little reveal as to why Syra was such a dickhead. I liked it. At the end. Yeah. I yeah, mean, while we were recording, we did it, again, in the most part, in the order it is in the book. Like, there was, a bit, there was a bit of jumping around at points, but it was often just sort of like, we're just going to go chapter by chapter and we're just going to knock this out. But it kind of meant that I hadn't had the opportunity to kind of read ahead at times. So there was like, I get to a scene, I'd be like, all right, what are we doing in this scene? Oh, okay. And so part of it was like getting to this point being like, oh, I get to redeem this guy. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> That's nice. I'm glad I'm glad he's not like this, just this jerk. And he's always a jerk. And he's just like, but now he's just like, here's why I'm a jerk. And it's like, all right, that's actually, that's kind of a yeah, crappy yeah. situation. Yeah. So we did actually ask Cole some questions because he couldn't be here and we and he was like yep i can find some time between rehearsals between scenes of like doing the actual acting (laughs) to answer the questions that you guys asked exactly (laughs) how we're getting a little bit of coal into the episode even without him being here just one of the ways so because we all got to ask questions and poor sam was very busy over the past couple of weeks. I think Sam should read out all the questions we asked and then we will respond pretending to be Colin. Hmm. So Colin writes at the, at the top of, of his thing, he says, Hey listeners, apologies I can't be with the gang for this episode and one that is so centred on the very popular Kraken. As of the recording time, I am currently on stage in yellow cross gartered stockings for the Queensland Shakespeare Ensemble's production of Twelfth Night. I started to respond to these during breaks and rehearsals and I'm continuing on whenever I get a spare moment. Yay, Cole! Yay! <laughs> yeah. Kevin asked, personally, 
I'd love to hear you talk about the experience of taking the Kraken into a very different emotional territory in the final episode. Having to move from the menacing, implacable assurance the character had leading up to now, how did that feel? Colin writes back to Kevin and says, There has to be light and shade, for sure. From a perspective of how the text is paced and its rhythms and all that stuff, and that's Emily's thing. The cracks are really beginning to show in the Kraken's plan, pun possibly unintended. Hard to tell around you sometimes, Kev. For me, I think about the acting paradox of it being a strength to have an actor portray vulnerability. Audiences like to see an actor open up as it builds the actor-audience relationship, lets audience members inside the story. It also builds trust between actors. It's an environment that I like working in as I've been in an ensemble for so long. Our artistic director likens it to doing high-wire stunts with a safety net, in that an aerialist will take greater risks, and therefore produce more exciting work, if they feel they will be safely caught if something goes amiss. Yeah, I guess what I'm trying to say here is that I trust my Priori peeps. Smiley face. But yes, it was a very enjoyable experience to get to the emotional heart of the Kraken's motivations. Very satisfying. Emily asks, I'd like to know how you feel about the Kraken going on a gloat fest at the end. It's cliche, I know, to do the expose of plans and the torture component, but to me it's so satisfying as a reader slash writer, even though it's cliche. Keen to hear your thoughts. <clears throat> so, so imagine if this was Cole as a middle-class Australian white woman. <laughs> I have the image in my head. I'm already there. <laughs> yeah. Okay, don't berate yourself if you think you are indulging in a trope. They do work. Use judiciously. Thank you, Cole. Yeah. But yes, this isn't a Bond moment where Goldfinger is going to cut his enemy in half from crotch to crown because he's had enough of the goody two-shoes and is now having a last laugh before that happens. The Kraken needs Beverly alive to draw out the Priori. And there is something very primal about his need to explain exactly why. Lending this desire voice is a basic human need to express the pain of being left out of the priori equation, as it were. We've all felt this kind of loss. I know I have. It was indeed very cathodic to channel a whole lot of loss-related bitterness on these lines. <laughs> to spit daggers at Beverly because she became the reason why the Kraken wasn't living the sort of life that he so desperately wanted. You articulate this so much better than I do, Cole. <laughs> David asks, my question is roughly along the lines of what is it like to play a baddie versus playing a goodie? Is there any difference or do you just treat each character as their own thing with traits and personality and quirks that are their own? Do all good people, like Charlie, have darkness in them that rounds them out? And do all bad people, like Cracky, conversely have some good in them uh, that makes them more human? If so, what would you say is the Kraken's redeeming feature? What, if anything... Do slash would you use to bring a third dimension to your performance? Or is it all just in your voice and reading? To put it as succinctly as possible, what do you do to get into character for the Kraken? And is it much different from your process to get into character for Charlie or any of the others? So Colin writes in response, I think a baddie is simply a goodie who has made a series of wrong decisions and is acting on fear and hate. It's also essential for a villain to be humanized. Otherwise, they end up being cookie-cutter bad guys and therefore supremely boring, 
Plus, there's no way to get into a character's motivation apart from twirling one's mustache and cackling evilly, and that gets silly. Maybe it's in part because I've been in classical theatre for so long, because one of the more beautiful elements of Shakespeare's texts is that there are precisely zero villainous characters who can't be sympathised with in even small ways. One only has to look at the apparently most evil of all his antagonists, Richard III, for an amazing example of this. Conveniently, Richard lays it all out in the first monologue. He was, apparently with the dramatic licence of historical inaccuracy, born physically deformed and therefore rejected by all around him, even by his own mother. He vows to be a hateful and underhanded bastard because he has been mistreated and unloved for decades. And really, it's not difficult to read into him lashing out at what he feels to be injustice. Side note, I'm reading Ayakano's very amazing manga, Requiem of the Rose King at the moment, and it's about Richard III. And most importantly, he isn't hunchbacked. He's trans. That's the monstrosity he lives with and is abused for. The series is stunning. Give it a go. It's the same kind of situation with the Kraken feeling, incorrectly and out of a sense of pride and envy, that he was more deserving of the priori than Beverly was. And yeah, conversely, there is always a dark side to an otherwise good protagonist, otherwise they end up being saccharine sweet and unbelievable, and thus unrelatable for an audience member. Shakespeare does this deftly too. None of his heroes are squeaky clean. Merchant's Portia is a huge racist for starters. Anyway, to get back on track, in a positive light, I see the Kraken as so very driven, pointed in the right way, that drive that he has could have done a great good for the whole realm, but no, it wasn't meant to be, achingly tragically. To get into this voice, I might have talked about this before in another episode, but I picked a certain actor's portrayal of a famous villain, one that has all of this bitterness and drive and hate, and had a good old listen to the voice, tried to divine where in myself that same motivations would come from, then pumped that into my best impression of that character's voice. I knew that I wouldn't 100% get the impression right, of course, but I also trusted the audience to make the leap with me and think, oh, I've heard that kind of voice before. I know where that type of villainy is coming from. Just as a quick aside, in that in the aside about Ayakano, I do want to say that the term monstrosity is in quotes. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. I just really liked the first line, which was, I think, badly, simply a goody who's made a series of wrong decisions. Wrong decisions, Acting yeah. on fear and hate, which is how people get radicalized in religion. Yeah. Or not even religion in things like societal belief. I mean, we're seeing a whole bunch of people in the United States acting very much out of fear and hate, and it's not necessarily religiously driven. Yeah, it's always been the most powerful lever. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that sort of lizard brain stuff, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it kicks you sort of like survival mode, and if you feel cornered, it doesn't even matter if you aren't. It's like you're in that mental space. And so absolutely. And when you're and, the same way. And when you're afraid, you can't do more abstract thinking. Mm. Yeah. You, just can't. Mm. you don't have resources yeah. to do. Uh, so our last question is from Lois. Kraken wise, what does the character look like in your mind's eye? How does he move, hold himself, stand? And so Colin writes back, he says, Okay, this is a little embarrassing, but when I was younger, I was a fan of the Dragonlance series. I was reading them back before they fell off the rails back where we had gorgeous characters like Sturm Brightblade, who's solely defined by his destiny to sacrifice himself for the greater good. Anyway, sorry, slightly off topic. But I see Kraken as a bit in the direction of the sickly archmage Raceland Majir. 
cloaked or cradled in the darkness of both his own evil and his ebony robes, and also hunched over and pained, living as half a person, but virtually crackling with the potential of raw power. Also, thank you, Lois. This is a fantastic question because I'm a big believer in the actor's body as a single instrument. And even when we're in the booth only doing voiceovers, we've got to be aware that we're not merely a voice. To wax lyrical, we are everything from the diaphragm to that point just beyond the lips where our voices go off to resonate in someone else. And all of that vocal mechanism is informed by bodily choices and muscular tension and so many other things. You'll see a lot of the great voice artists, Peter Sellers is a prime example, who will physicalize their voice characters at the mic even when no one is watching because they know that sometimes even small physical changes will give a verisimilitude to a voice that an audience member will hear and subconsciously process. While we were recording, we definitely talked about that with Colin as we were doing Absolutely. the lines. I remember, I think it was Monsters, Inc. Mm -hmm. They do it with other animated um, films and, and shows and stuff, but they would film the voice actors recording the lines yeah. and then the animators would utilize that in the animation. Mm -hmm. Some of the, the voice actors were saying how like their family was watching going, that's how you walk or <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, that's what you do when you laugh yeah, and stuff nice. like that. So they've started incorporating that into, yeah. um, and obviously now they've got like, you know, body capture and all the rest of it, but they mm -hmm. were before then taking cues because they had that same thought. It's not just the voice. It's going to be a whole thing. And they want to see what you were doing when you were making that voice. Thank you, Cole, for putting in the effort to give us all of those answers. That is so very lovely of you when you were doing up to two shows a day. Yeah, yeah. very, just very good answers too. Like, yeah. um, I mean, this is amazing. Yeah, they're really considered answers. Honestly, it's yeah. kind of like, it's a little bit of uh, how to play a villain 101. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I like that. Welcome to the Crackademy. <laughs> oh, man, that's, that's too good. Oh. Actually, we need that crack academy for our next section. Obviously, without Colin, we, we don't have a crack in good reads. So we're all going to have a crack at it. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I apologize. I'm, no, I, I already regret no, everything. No, crack. True, I don't. I have no shame. <laughs> <laughs> right. So as we don't have a, a Colin, we do have something to read. And... But we're all going to have a have do our darndest to do a Kraken voice as we read it. <laughs> all right, oh, Are ready? I mean, no, I'll, but let's I'll do it. Do just, it. just hit it, guys. I think we're going to be okay. I think that's good, yeah, guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think yeah, we got it. Fine. Okay. Done. Sorry, guys. We left our worst for like the last episode. We, yeah. we peaked when like Colin did like a whole like guitar slash mm. <laughs> singing. Yeah. Some, and then some, we of, some of them got really elaborate. Yes. <laughs> so... Which, Hand pipes, okay. there was bottle <laughs> yeah. blowing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. So, I oh, am yeah. happy to start this with a horrible Kraken impression. Plans inside plans and ominous voices. Hunting for children and life-changing choices. Quiet conversations 
with sholaks that sting. These are a few of my favorite things. Tweaking the lines and magic medallions, queens of the forest and flying white stallions, giving my friends gifts of magical rings. These are a few of my favorite things. Undersea cities and sorcerous extinction, biding my time and commands with distinction, ruling above all the queens and the kings. These are a few of my favorite things. When the shades strike, when the rocks fall, when I'm feeling sad, I simply remember my favorite things. And then it's not so bad. <laughs> Sorry. We should credit Sam for doing those wonderful redo yes, lyrics to These Are My Favorite Things. They were just, thank you, Sam. That was amazing. <laughs> The uh, Poet Laureate of Fiori. <laughs> so I think that unfortunately brings us to the conclusion of our our second last, second last episode. So from all of us here over at Priori, thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for making it to the second last episode. And hope you've been enjoying it as much as we have. Yay! And thank you, everybody. Yeah. Thank you. And now we leave you with a gag reel. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. You know, he was torturing Charlie and like, interrogating him. You have to sort of interrogate yourself. Yeah, there you go. Dramatic deaths are awesome. You're just a jerk. You're just a bully and a jerk. <laughs> You're a big meanie. Go you away. me with Syrah. Oh, it's my life. Yeah. <laughs> okay, this is going to be loud. <laughs> Ready? <laughs> oh, man. Oh, it's a little bit creepy. He's really battered and bruised. Yeah, yeah. Mm. <laughs> just he's, he's had a little bit too sprightly to have just yeah. been like knocked out and crushed by a set of lines. Got this. I got this. It's fine. Can't feel below my eyelids, but whatever. I like this, Nick. I like it. <laughs> there are many like it, but this one is mine. <laughs> I could be talking out of mass. I miss the, the part where you're talking to your cat. Y'all are waiting for me to be drinking stuff before you make those lines, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ocean spray. Uh, <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> She's gone evil. Oh. I, I apologize. My cat desperately wants to be a part of this podcast. Yeah. Normal mics. Funny because it also means butt. Well, I'm sure we can work it out and it'll be flawless. I will do the background music. Oh, no. Then... <laughs> mm. Actually, that would be handy because I never ever want to read that myself. <laughs> <laughs> My tastes are somewhat unconventional. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. And you can cut that out, David. <laughs> Give it in. Do it. Just this once. Insubordination? I'm an artist. <laughs> the people need to see this. Priori the Podcast is a full cast audio of the fantasy novel Priori, written by Emily Craven, the author of the Grand Adventures of Madeline Kane series. The podcast is produced by Emily Craven and Kevin Powell and contains the voiceover talents of Emily, Kevin, Sam Piaggio, Colin Smith and Lois Spangler. 
Intro and outro music is thanks to composer Christopher Healy. Our audio intern is the amazing David Fithian. Each weekly episode contains a chapter of Priori, as well as a gag reel and chat with the cast. To find out more about Priori, Emily, the cast, or to sign up to the newsletter of Awesome, go to www.originalfantasy.com forward slash Priori podcast. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider while you're at the website donating the price of a cup of coffee towards us paying our wonderful voiceover actors. These guys have freely donated their time for this project and Emily would like to shower them with riches so they'll consider creating more podcasts with her and for you in the future.